There's a story about the famous jurist Oliver Wendell Holmes, and he once boarded a train, and he was unable to find his ticket. And after watching him fumble through his pockets in growing dismay, the conductor said politely, that's all right, Mr. Holmes. I sure you have your ticket somewhere. If you don't find it before you've gotten off, you can just mail it to the railroad. Certainly we can trust you for that. And looking at the conductor straight in the eye, Mr. Holmes replied, Young man, that isn't my problem at all. I don't care about giving the ticket to the railroad. I just want to find out where the blazes I'm going. <laughs> it's like a few years ago when a corporate executive announced the establishment of an annual Better Leadership Award. Better Leadership Award. And the first person to be honored for this award was Christopher Columbus, posthumously. And the reason he was so named was that he started out not knowing where he was going. When he arrived, he didn't know where he was. And upon returning, he didn't know where he had been. And it isn't good when someone doesn't know where they're going and why. It's, it's not good when a church doesn't know where it's going or, and why it's going there. And that's why the Holy Spirit gives us two particular spiritual gifts for the church to help us know as a church where we are going, as well as how to get there. And those are the spiritual gifts of leadership and faith. Now, there's two gifts that are similar to leadership, and the other one is administration. But first of all, we find the spiritual gift of leadership that we listed in Romans chapter 12, verse 8, in the 12th chapter of Romans. Paul lists seven particular spiritual gifts here that will be exercised in accordance to our faith. And each one of these gifts is to be used in a certain way. And so he says in verse 8 of Romans chapter 12, Or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives how with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy, how do we do that? With cheerfulness. It says he who leads with diligence. That's the way the gift of leadership is to be exercised. I was thinking a few years ago when I preached on the gift of leadership, I told a story about what leading with diligence doesn't look like. I said that a man came bursting into a room, and frantically he cried out, Have you seen them? Which way did they go? I'm their leader. <laughs> and when I came into my office the next morning on Monday morning, there was a ball cap sitting on my desk. It was green, and it said leader across the top, but it had two brims facing two different directions. <laughs> and I thought of the cowboy who jumped on his horse and rode off in all directions. Well, that's not leadership. The word translated leads, and he who leads with diligence, comes from two Greek words, which means to stand before. To stand before. The leader is the one out front. The leader is the one out front. Uh, there's a famous quote where General Robert E. Lee is speaking to General Longstreet right before the Battle of Gettysburg, that decisive battle. And General Lee is encouraging General Longstreet to, to be careful and don't get too far out in front where he'd be certainly killed. And that had already happened to Stonewall Jackson, General Stonewall Jackson, who got too far out in front of the lines and, and was shot and killed. And he's in saying, Longstreet, just don't do this. You need to hold back. And there's that famous response from, from General Longstreet, you can't lead from behind. <laughs> You can't do that. The leader is the one who stands before, stands in front. 
Now, this is related to the gift of ministration that's mentioned in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. You don't need to, to turn to it. And some people say the leadership and administration as being the same gift. I think there's some little bit differences here, and we'll look at those. The word translated administrations is the same word in the Greek that's translated in Ezekiel chapter 27, verse 8, as pilots, as pilots. It says, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, saying, The inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your rowers. Your wise men, O Tyre, were aboard. They were your pilots. They were your gifted administrators. It's the same word there. They're the ones that act as pilots. They're the ones who get you to where you want to go. So is there a difference between leadership and administration? I see a little bit of a difference. And we can see it illustrated by Moses. So turn back to Exodus chapter 18, verse 17. The 18th chapter of Exodus. And this is when Moses was bringing Israel from Egypt to the promised land. He was leading them. And they had come out of Egypt. God had uh, divided the sea and they crossed it on dry land. And then they have learned to worship God. There was Mount Sinai and all those kind of things. And now they're settled in, as it were, but they're ready to move out. And Moses is one of the greatest leaders in history. But Moses was not a very efficient administrator. He needed an effective administrator. And of all things, Moses' father-in-law fit the bill. Jethro saw the problem. Moses was standing before the people from sun up to sundown, trying to solve every problem in the congregation. And we pick it up in verse 17 of Exodus chapter 18. So Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, said to Moses, The thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out, both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. So so don't miss what Jethro is saying here to to Moses, his son-in-law. When the leader of the congregation wears out, who wears out? Everybody. Everybody wears out. Everyone in the congregation wears out. You know, Moses was standing before the people from sun up to sundown, trying to, you know, and they were lining up. They were bringing every little problem. You know, these are people who had been 400 years in slavery. What did they know about making any decisions for themselves? Not a thing. Nothing. Every decision, everything in their whole life had already been done for them up till this point. And now they have some freedom and they, they don't know what to do with it. And so Moses is trying to solve every one of these problems. And so in verse 19, Jethro continues, Now listen to me. I will give you counsel, and God be with you. You will be the people's representative before God, and and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws, and make known to them the way in which they are to walk, and the work that they are to do. Moses, you can't do it all. But you need to stand before the people and guide them in the way that they are to walk according to God's word, according to his commandments. And what are they supposed to do? Then they will walk according to God's word. So, so here's what to do, Moses, verse 21. Yeah, did I say? Oh, okay. 
Oh, okay. Yes, Exodus 18. Misprint. Thank you. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. You shall place these over them as leaders of hundreds or thousands of hundreds of fifties and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times and let that be and let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you. But every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. Doesn't that sound a lot like Acts chapter 6 when a complaint arose among the the widows or the people in the church? Because the Greek widows were being neglected in the distribution of the food. So what did the apostles do? They showed that they had the ability to administrate. They had the congregation choose seven men who were of good reputation, full of the Spirit, full of the wisdom, full of wisdom, who were full of faith, and they put them in charge of the task. And the apostles said, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so diligent leadership is not working so hard that it wears you out and wears everybody else out. It's not that at all. It's not trying to do too much, but diligent leadership is doing what God called and gifted the leader to be and to do. I was actually talking to a guy one time, and he was a pastor of a church, and he says, my goal is to burn myself out for God. And I go, that's not a very good goal. <laughs> that doesn't do anybody good, any, anything like that. You know, so we get this idea that the, the diligence is working so hard, but it's doing what God called each one of us to do and gifted us to do and serving in that capacity. So let me give you a definition of the spiritual gifts of leadership and administration. Leadership and administration is where leadership is the ability to stand before the people and give them guidance, while administration refines and executes the goals and directions. In other words, they are the the pilots. They are the ones that, that get us to where we want to go. So what does the gift of leadership look like? What does it look like? If someone has the gift of leadership, what are his or her main characteristics? What are their qualities? And there's a whole host of things that that we could list, like humility and and wisdom filled with the Spirit. They have to have vision and, and faith. But from the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's all summed up by the phrase servant leadership. Servant leadership. All Christian leadership is to be servant leadership. So with that, please turn to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 20, the 25th verse of Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 20, verse verse 25. And in Matthew chapter 20, we have the account, which is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, where the mother of James and John asked the Lord and said, I have a request. She brought her two boys with him, and uh, Luke, I think, James and John asked the question, or part of it. So they, the boys are in on it. They asked the Lord Jesus, if one of her sons could one sit on his left and the other on his right when he comes into his kingdom. And I've always thought, you know, that's just the way a Jewish mother takes care of her kids. Well, you let one of my kids sit on my right and sit on my left. And, and when you come into your kingdom, because a mom always wants what's best for her boys. But the other disciples 
were really kind of upset about that request, maybe because they hadn't thought of it first. <laughs> and so they became, the Bible says, indignant with the two brothers. So Jesus goes on to explain what true greatness is. Verse 25 of Matthew chapter 20. But Jesus called him, them to himself, gathered all the disciples to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be the first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Lesson learned? Yeah, you might think so. But then you don't know the disciples very well because they're just like us. There are at least three, maybe four separate occasions where the disciples argued about which one of them is to be the greatest or they actually made a request to be, have the seat of the greatest. There is this one when James and John's mother asked about the upfront seating arrangements in the kingdom. And then there was a time when Jesus told them that the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men who will kill him. And as far as I can tell, this is the first time that Jesus revealed to his disciples that he came to die. And what was the response of the disciples? Luke records the disciples immediately went into the house and started arguing once again about who's going to be the greatest. <laughs> what can you say? Then of all things, they got into it again in the upper room the night before Jesus went to the cross. So let's go to John's Gospel. John chapter 13, the 13th chapter of John, verse 3. In the 13th chapter of John, Jesus models servant leadership. Jesus gives a visual, visual parable by washing the disciples' feet. And the Lord Jesus shows us that the most effective people in the kingdom of God, the greatest people, if we want to use that word, in the kingdom of God, and those the most effective in using their spiritual gifts, whether it's leadership or service or, or teaching or preaching or mercy, whatever it is, the most effective are the people who are servants of others. And that's why our spiritual gifts are given to us. Remember that? For the common good, that we might serve one another. Biblical leadership, biblical mercy, whatever it is, is servant mercy, is servant leadership. And so in verse 3 of John chapter 13, while they're in the upper room, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So when he came to Simon Peter, he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, 
He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, then you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Jesus here did the unthinkable. When there was no servant to fulfill the custom of washing the feet. Normally in the context of the supper room situation, you would have someone who would be a servant. Maybe they had a hired servant. Maybe they had just somebody who would act as a servant. As people came into the house, someone would be there with a towel wrapped around them. They'd have a little basin about this size and would wash off the people's feet. It, you know, it was, they wore sandals and it was dirty roads and those kind of things. And, and they, they washed the feet. And only then would that person who had his feet washed be able to go up and be seated to have the meal together. For table fellowship and hospitality, that was a prerequisite. But there was nobody there, evidently, who was going to wash the feet. The disciples had already gone up to the table, and nobody had washed their feet. Certainly none of the disciples were going to wash one another's feet because they'd already been squabbling about who was the best in the kingdom of God and who's going to have the highest seat. And they were anxious to take their seats at the table of the Lord. So if they're going to be squabbling about this, we can be sure that none of them are going to offer themselves as a servant. Because to do that, by their definition, by their definition they would be one of the least in the kingdom. You know, there's something here that they don't understand yet. Even though this is the last night they spent with their Lord before he was raised again. Jesus has been teaching this upside-down value. An upside-down value. It's an upside-down kingdom where you can take the world's value system and all that the world values, all that the world thinks is important, all that the world thinks is great, and just turn it completely on its head. Put it on its head. And then you have a pretty good approximation of what Jesus was talking about when he talks about his kingdom. It's totally counterintuitive. The way up is down. The way to first is to be last. The way to be the leader is to be the servant. All these things are frankly, they frankly don't make sense from our you far viewpoint the one that how you find your life is what to lose it you see you really can't obey jesus in this upside down kingdom and it's not really upside down the world's really upside down and the apostles they turned the whole world on its head didn't they they turned everything upside down when they preached the gospel but you know you really can't obey jesus until you understand that everything's upside down from, from our point of view, from the worldly point of view, and believing that when he calls us to pursue this upside-down kingdom, that he's going to give us something better, something greater than anything the world can give us that's clear down here and inverted. 
And so there's this appeal to sacrifice by, to follow Christ, but there's no appeal to sacrifice in following Christ unless there is a greater gain that God is going to give us, a true gain, a true value. And so the concept here is that you're just not called to give something up and follow Jesus or whatever he asks us to do, but you're going to actually gain something far better than what you're giving up. That's the way of the kingdom. You see, the disciples had all these ideas about what Christ's kingdom was going to look like. And they weren't bad ideas. Most of them came from Scripture and what God had promised with the Messiah, and this is how it's going to be. But they didn't realize everything's inverted, and sacrifice and death must come first before there's all these things. But they looked at what Christ's kingdom, what they thought it was going to look like. And, and all the people at that time probably thought it was going to look like, and especially as a disciple of the king, this is what it's going to look like to me. The yoke of the Roman oppression is going to be cast off. It would be like the kingdom of David and Solomon. You know, we've been looking at those kingdoms a little bit in the Sunday school class, and, and Solomon's kingdom you know, where there was the glorious temple that he built, a house for the Lord, and, and all the riches that, that Solomon had, and, and all these places of position and, and prestige and greatness in this kind of kingdom. And the disciples were holding as tight as they could uh, what it meant to be great in that kingdom. Boy, this is going to be great. You know, think of it this way. Suppose you've been holding on to something in your hand that you thought was precious, you thought was glorious, that you, it was high, highly desirable, and, and you've been holding it on into your hand for fear that if you don't hold on to it tightly, you're going to lose it. And you've been holding on into it so tightly in your hand that now it looks like crumpled aluminum or it's just wadded up tinsel. It's shiny still, has some appeal, but you really can't see it through, through your fingers, but but you really know that in your hand now it's all crumpled and it's really nothing more than, than garbage. And Jesus comes along and he begins to open it up finger by finger, finger by finger, and sometimes that hurts a little bit. And we let go of that which is shiny and crumpled and garbage and once it falls out of our hands, then God is able to take and place in our hand what is precious and what is true. Something that's, that, that's so one, you know, we can't receive that which God has for us that is so wonderful until we let go of the other thing. And not until the disciples were ready to let go of their supposed greatness and what they thought greatness was going to be, that which they held on so tightly that they argued about it all the time, there was nothing but glints and foil and tinsel, garbage. Could they truly receive what it means to be great in the kingdom of God, to be a servant of others? And Jesus told them, For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. And that doesn't mean that as a servant of God we're going to be full-time foot washers. 
I remember I was a full-time dishwasher for, <laughs> not quite full-time, I was also a college student for, for two and a half years. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very humiliating and, you know, that kind of, it doesn't mean that all the time we're going to be foot washer, but we are going to be full-time servants, right? Full-time servants. I've uh, been thinking a lot this week about what Dr. Howard Hendricks said at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I heard him say one time, you know, I don't mind it so much when people say, I'm a servant of God. They call me a servant of God. Then he said, but if I'm honest, I really hate it when they treat me like a servant. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? And so remembering and living what true greatness is takes us back to Romans chapter 12, verse 3. In that third verse of Romans chapter 12. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. I almost wore my tie this morning and had George Washington crossing the Delaware. And I thought, well, that's maybe next month when uh, it's President's Day, <laughs> you know. But uh, the reason is because I was thinking a lot about George Washington this week. And, uh, you know, there's a story, there was a bleak and cold day in which George Washington stepped out of his headquarters. And I imagine those are the headquarters at, at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, and that, that cold and that brutal winter where so many soldiers lost their life or got frostbite or died of disease and starvation and you know it was cold and so General Washington drew up the collar on his coat and he pulled his hat down to shield his face from the cold blowing wind and he walked down the road to where the soldiers were fortifying a camp and no one recognized this tall muffled man who was in fact the commander of the army and he came across a group of soldiers who were under the command of a corporal they were building a breastwork of logs, and the corporals all, the corporal all filled with himself and thought himself important and superior, kept on barking orders at these men. He'd say, up with it, now together push. And they were trying desperately to push this big log, this final log, up into the crest. And, and each time at the last minute, it, they'd kind of give out and the log would come back down. And they were exhausted. And the corporal would say once again, up with it, what ails you? Up with it. The men would tug again and again. The log would come crashing down because they just weren't quite strong enough to do it. And finally, the third time, when he starts barking at them, General Washington himself goes up to them and with them exerts all of his strength. Washington was always a head taller than anybody else in the, in the room. He, he was a big, strong man. And all together, they pushed that log in and it finally fell into place. And the exhausted men were about to thank this unknown soldier. And at that point... He turned to the corporal and said, uh, Washington turned to the corporal and said, why don't you help your men with the heavy lifting when they need another hand? And the corporal replied, don't you see that I'm a corporal? And Washington said, indeed. And he opened up his coat and revealed his uniform and said, I am the commander in chief. And he said to him, the next time you have a log too heavy for your men to lift, send for me. (laughs) Send for me. To me, that's an example of servant leadership. The corporal's all filled with himself. And it's an amazing analogy of our own lives at times, isn't it? Sometimes we get so filled with our own self-importance and 
You know, we all need to know that the most important position on this planet, whatever it is, is totally trivial. And we could even say garbage compared with the kingdom of God. None of those positions really matter much at all relative to the power of the kingdom. And we need to get that perspective that we don't think too highly of ourselves, that we have a high important estimate of ourselves than we ought to think. And then the last gift that we're going to look at is the gift of faith. Next week we'll talk about from Romans chapter 12 how to know our individual spiritual gifts. But uh, the gift of faith. And this is a good spiritual gift to end with because it takes faith to use any one of our spiritual gifts. Look at Romans chapter 12 again in verse 3 in the middle of the verse. We are to think as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And then he says in verse 6, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. The Bible teaches us that everything we do, the entirety of the Christian life, is a life of faith. For example, in Colossians 2.6 it says, Therefore, as you have received Jesus or Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, being built up and established in your faith. Hebrews 11.6, And without faith it is what? Impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Romans 12.23, Whatever is not from faith is sin. So you have what's from faith or you have sin. There's no in-between. You see, when we're not walking by faith, this is what happens. When we're not walking by faith, all we can see are the problems of life. All we can see are the struggles and the defeats. Without faith, adversity is problem-centered rather than potential-centered. Without faith, the future holds little hope for better things. Without faith, life is lived in the past and the present with little regard for the future. And so without faith, the Christian life becomes stagnant. Turn to the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, that great chapter of faith. The faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. The writer of Hebrews lists one example of faith after another. This has been called the hall of faith. And he first defines what faith is. Verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11. The writer says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And and one expansion of the verse paraphrases, paraphrases it this way. Faith is the confident assurance that what we hope for is waiting for us even though we can't see it. What we hope for is waiting for us even when we can't see it. And so put simply, faith is taking God at his word and acting upon it. Faith is taking God at his word and acting upon it. And we see the example of Abraham, the father of faith, here in in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, when he was called, obeyed. By going out to a place where he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Not knowing where he was going. Okay, the pastor started with a whole list of illustrations, how stupid it was to not know where you're going. 
And here's Abraham, the father of faith, going out not knowing where he was going. So what's the deal here? What's the thing here? What's the difference? The difference is that Abraham was told by God to go out to a place that he had promised. And Abraham didn't understand any of that. All Abraham knew was God told him to go, and Abraham went. That is faith. And along the way, God made more promises. That's the way our God works. He doesn't say go and then two years later going, what am I doing out here? No, he, he guides us, and by faith we keep following him. He told Abraham, you will be the father of many nations. Your descendants will be like the, the sands of the sea. I will bless you and your descendants. All the nations of the earth will be blessed on account of you. You will receive an inheritance. You see, faith is not a leap in the dark thinking, well, maybe I should do this. This sounds good. I think that's what I do. And I know God's going to take care of me. I know that it's going to be okay. Everything's going to turn out okay. I, I'm just going to do it by faith. Wrong. That's doing it by foolishness. I tell this story every decade or so, but it's a good story. <laughs> a man was walking along the side of a cliff, you know, and he was looking over, and maybe he was taking a selfie or something, and uh, he, he fell off. And just as he was coming down the side, he grabbed this branch that was hanging out of the side of the cliff, and he was hanging onto that. And he, you know, he, he, he finally got enough strength where he could say, is anybody up there? Is anybody up there? And finally, there was a voice that said, I'm up here. And he said, well, who are you? And I, he said, the voice said, I am God. God, what should I do? Help me. And God said, let go of the branch. Is anybody else up there? <laughs> anybody else? Yeah. You know, God said, let go of the branch. He can trust him. Faith is not a leap in the dark or letting go of the branches because we hope something, because God told us to do that, and we obey. And beyond the common faith that we're all to exercise in the Christian faith lies the gift of faith, the gift of faith. And we find the gift of faith mentioned in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just so we can see where it's listed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we find another list of the spiritual gifts. And Paul writes in verse 8, verse 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, the gift of faith. So let me give you a simple definition of the gift of faith, and then we'll look at it just a little bit deeper. The spiritual gift of faith is the ability to believe and trust God for what seems impossible. The spiritual gift of faith is the ability to believe and trust God for what seems impossible. Now, there's in times all of us have that, that as we walk in faith, but there is that special ability, like all the other spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit, that God gives some believers to believe Him for the impossible. The person with the gift of faith, in the practical sense, has the ability to envision what God wants. What does God want? What does God want to accomplish in his life, in his work, in his family, in his church? What does God want to accomplish in our church that seems impossible 
But God does all things by faith. You know, I remember Dr. Charles Stanley saying one time, you know, I just wish that Christians would get on the edge more often than they do, at least now and then, to where if God didn't come through their head, their toast. Because that is where our faith takes over if God said to, to get out there. You know, and so the person with the gift of faith also recognizes there are obstacles, there are risks, there are dangers. You know, and these are the kinds of things that keep the average, the typical Christian from, from believing and stepping out on that vision because everyone else may sit back and say, well, let's use some common sense here. What you dream's impossible. It can't be done. There's too many problems. But the person with the gift of faith is not deterred. Talking about what Dr. Howard Hendricks taught us again, he gave an example of the gift of faith working along, working in the life of Dr. Harry Ironside. And he tells the, the story about uh, shortly after Dallas Theological Seminary was founded in 1924, it almost folded up. It almost capitulated. It came to the point of bankruptcy. All the creditors were going to foreclose at 12 noon on a particular day. And that morning, the founders of the school met in the president's office to pray that God would provide. And in that prayer meeting was Dr. Harry Ironside. And it was Dr. Ironside's turn to pray. He prayed in his characteristically refreshing manner. And he said, Lord, we know that the cattle on a thousand hills are thine. Please sell some of them and send us the money. <laughs> While they were praying, a tall Texan with boots on and an open collar came into the business office and said, I just sold two carloads of cattle in Fort Worth. I've been trying to make a business deal go through, and it's just not going to go through. And I feel that God is compelling me to give this money to the seminary. I don't know if you need it or not, <laughs> but here is the check. The secretary took the check, and knowing the circumstances of the hour financially, she went to the door of the prayer meeting, and she timidly tapped. Timothy you know, didn't want to inter interrupt, but you know how that goes. And when she finally got a response, Dr. Schaefer took the check out of her hand, and it was for the exact amount of the debt. When he looked at the signature on the check, he recognized the name of the cattleman from Fort Worth. And turning to Dr. Ironside, he said, Harry, God sold the cattle. <laughs> Dr. Ironside was a man gifted with faith. He knew God's word and he claimed its age-old promises for current needs. While the other men possessed faith and hoped that God would do something, Dr. Ironside fully expected God to provide the need. Shall we pray? Father, we're not very far into a, a new year, the year 2020. And as we look at what's going on in our country, in our world, everything's a mess. Everything's a mess. Father, we need the upside-down kingdom to come into our lives, to come into our church, to come into our community, Lord. 
to come into our nation, in our world. And Father, I thank you for those that are gifted with the gift of faith, the gift of leadership, but all the spiritual gifts, Lord, that we can serve one another and serve others through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, because we live in a world that is so much in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live in a world where people need so much to come to Jesus Christ in faith for their salvation, but to become his servants, Lord. Where all of us who serve you, by faith we know that you are going to make a difference in our world because of what you give to us and what you make of us as servants of the living God. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.